Welcome to the Make Your Friends Rich podcast, dedicated to founders and their friends enriching each other and how that love fest can manifest into beautiful things. We're your hosts, Megan Everett and Lance Pin. In the years we've known one another, we've helped each other make money and friends that, that have changed, changed our lives. lives. Remembering always, it's not what you know, but who you know. And how useful you can be to each other that can really change your stations in life. People should be open-minded and do what they're passionate about. Don't pursue a career path just for the money. The money should be the reward showing your passion. But I think right now there's so many great unconventional opportunities to create wealth. Let's just talk about the social media economy, the Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. If, if, if it was an economy, it would be one of the biggest economies in the world. True. When you think about all of the advertising revenue, products, services, charging for endorsements. If you want to plug something on an influencer's page, you're charging a quarter million dollars for 24 hours. Like the social media economy has completely changed the dynamic for unlocking opportunities for success. And as a 12 year old, you can tap into this market. You have, I've seen there's a, there's a young child, the multimillionaire making millions of dollars a year reviewing toys. He likes toys. That's his passion, right? He's not, oh, I want to make money, mommy and daddy. He's like, no, I like toys. <laughs> I'm a normal child. I like to play things. I'm interactive. I have a personality. Start doing it. And he's making millions of dollars a year doing that. I think like having access to social media like, platforms that connects people all over the world completely changed the game. Like you don't have to go to school. You don't have to go to grad school if you don't necessarily want to. I'm, I'm sure, just like everything else, not everyone makes it. Because for every success story, for every one person, there's probably like 900 people who try the same thing and haven't had the same success. So there are different elements, but it's just another opportunity set that wasn't available when I was a teenager for an early 20s. Right. Facebook just launched in like, what, 2004, 2005? So yeah, I think that's another huge area of potential success. In this conversation, we learn about the wide world of financial planning from experienced asset manager, investor, and strategist Ainsley Manning. Embodying a perspective that may seem atypical of most finance professionals, Ainsley began his career with a strong appreciation for the entrepreneurial mindset, so he has a particular respect for the founders that have invested in taking what they believe to be a great idea, putting a team together, building something out of nothing, and taking it on a rocket ship from there. He also notes that since the pandemic, we've seen a tremendous amount of investment activity from everyday individuals that have never invested in assets before. And luckily, most newcomers have had the benefit of riding one of the strongest bull markets ever, until now. Considering the current momentum of the economy and the trends that are likely to continue, Ainsley's advice on navigating through false financial narratives and how to become a student of investment strategy has come just in time. So if you're looking for a curriculum for building and managing wealth while maintaining a genuine balance in building a real world support circle in the midst of the changing dynamics of our social media infused economy, please listen along with us as we take notes from one of the most even keeled and gracious gentlemen in the game, our friend Ainsley Manning. All right, Ainsley, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here, Lance and Megan. Appreciate you inviting me. Appreciate your time. Glad we're able to do it. 
We're excited to have you. Super excited. And before I butcher an introduction, might as well give you a chance to give the two-minute drill on where you're at now and what you've been up to. Absolutely. My name is Ames Manning. I'm actually attended Babson College with Lance. I graduated 2009. I spent the last 13 years in finance working at initially a small firm, then the largest asset manager, now at a private equity firm, investor strategy role. I'm very excited to be here and talk about a host of topics and glad to connect with Megan as well. So I think one thing that's important is having attended Babson, but also working finance, I've always maintained an entrepreneurial mindset within kind of corporate organization and structure. I think which has been a key differentiator thus far and will be going forward. Yeah, we call that uh, intrapreneurship over at Babson. So many fantastic lessons. But finance, what does that mean? It's a whole world that's confusing to most people. I don't know if you've watched Friends and people don't know what, what Chandler does, but that's kind of how I feel about you. Although I have some education in finance, uh, still it's, it's a wide world of sports, as it were. Does anybody yeah. actually know what Chandler does still? No? No. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I've, I've given up on trying to explain to my girlfriend what, what I do as well. But think about it as investing large pools of capital if you're an institutional investor. So sovereign wealth fund, a uh, really big insurer, North America pension plan, investing in kind of private equity, private credit, real asset strategies, um, usually in some kind of customized format. So there's different oh. sell side, buy side. It's always uh, so vague because I feel like people in finance are like, we can't talk about it because you can't give like actual examples because yeah. you're with like a major firm. So it's not just like a VC or like managing private wealth. It's everything, right? Yeah. yeah so, give us a, a day in the life. What there the, we go. What are you doing? Yeah. I agree. Day in the life. Let's say a large sovereign wealth fund or pension plan has a billion or two billion to invest to achieve a certain return target, partner with them, allocating across the, the platform, the firm where I work, across various individual strategies, funds, opportunistic direct investments, um, typically working with someone on the other side who has you know, deep investment knowledge and experience as well. And so it involves aspects of negotiation, of investment analysis, research, Communication. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I sometimes envy people who are creatives, who use the other side of the brain and create their own company, their own business from the ground up. Whereas investing, you're investing in existing companies, businesses. Typically, you're not really creating entities. You can do it sometimes in like, if you're doing some kind of acquisitions, mergers, and structures, but by and large, these are established companies and entities and that you're just investing capital to, to grow these companies further. I think it's really exciting to be in that position of Glance's experience and you, Megan, as well, where you have this great idea, you put together a team, build something out of nothing, take it on a rocket ship upward, and then you reach out to some folks in the capital markets uh, like myself. I'm like, all right, we want to get some kind of growth equity investment or private credit and really take things on a kind of global scale. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for entrepreneurs who take that risk, take that leap of faith about something they're truly passionate about, leverage your experience or network. And the backbone of the American dream, the economy, are entrepreneurs, right? Like that's why one comes here. It's this great country for 
building your own business. You have like literally cab drivers who become billionaires here because they have an idea and they put their all into it and they're rewarded for that. So, you know, something I really appreciate the full, full aspect of. We're like, give us all the accolades because all entrepreneurs are like, tell us how great we are. I think it's interesting though. Most entrepreneurs I know want to get to a point where they are investing and working less. So that's a goal. Do something with the thing you build so you can get to like more of a Mark Cuban type of person, maybe not a billionaire, but like where you're actually just investing and like mentoring and not so much like in the day-to-day grind. But most of us don't know what we're doing with finances. Like I posted something last week about accredited, accredited investors because we're seeing this trend in like crowdfunding. It's being called crowdfunding where like people are popping up and saying, invest in my company, you'll get a percentage but they're not really explaining like what you need to have to do that and keep your percentage. And so I posted like a little, basically just like an infograph that was like, this is what an accredited investor is. Just know this is what you need to know. And so many women reached out to me and they're like, I know nothing about finances. I don't even know what's going on in my 401k, which is crazy. Like I've been playing with my 401k since I was 22 and got my first one. But what is your advice to people to start getting involved? What exactly is wealth management? Like how do you need quote, like wealth to have a financial advisor? Give us like the basics of what this is. Absolutely. I think you raise a great point there. If you look at the curriculum for schools, high schools across the country, it's very rare to find a financial literacy courses. Yeah. Finances 101, which I'm always surprised when I, I maybe I shouldn't be, but because I've worked in the industry for so long, surprised when I meet people outside the industry and things that I take for granted, it's like just basic finance, financial literacy 101 knowledge is completely missing. I think it sheds light on the situation we have in the US where a lot of households aren't managing their balance sheet really well in terms of debt load, optimizing tax advantage accounts, estate planning, investing and saving appropriately. What we see now is a lot of successful, what I would call, which is kind of a trap, you're a successful consumer, right? You work, save, and you spend. And the vast majority of what you make is you focus on your discretionary spending. While typically what we see in this generation having a high debt load, usually from a combination of you know, student loan, credit card debt, and auto loans. So I'll say for me to long way to answer your question, the first thing that I would recommend is just establishing a strong base on financial literacy and how to apply that to your personal finance. If you look at the way you look in the corporate world, just two examples, you have like your income statement and your balance sheet, like what are your assets and liabilities? Just on a personal level, understanding I think everyone understands the income statement, right? I have a job, I get paid X times a, a month, but there's the room for improvement on the asset and liability side. Like how do you optimize your income to build, invest in assets over time to increase your kind of net worth and also investing in income producing assets and having a diversified portfolio of financial assets. So stock, bonds, this was public, but also private and private equity. And then like real assets, investing in real estate, investing in small businesses. I think you got to have the full and diversified 
approach on financial markets, but also investing in the real economy. I think a lot of people now are with this generation of cryptocurrency, NFTs, people are embracing a lot of risk and emerging opportunities without understanding the risk profile of it. If you saw the last two years during the pandemic, a lot of people started trading stock options out of the blue with limited knowledge, understanding this is a derivative. Here's what drives the value of this derivative. It's it became the big casino. Everything was shut down. A lot of folks were getting PPP loans, unemployment benefits, didn't have any options on what to do to spend it. So now suddenly everyone's an expert in, in stock options and trading Forex. And I'm sure you've all seen it on social media, people showing off, oh, I made, I made a ton of money trading options in cryptocurrency, joined my class. Six mm -hmm. months ago, I was working at a fast food restaurant. I have no formal training <laughs> or education in this field, but trust me. And so, so you want me to put my life savings and following you when you basically invest at the bottom of the market, when the market was shooting straight up on the back of fiscal and monetary policy to support the economy after the pandemic. And you've never traded in a down market or a sideways market. But, and it's, it's incredible. There's so many people who sign up for this and putting oh, their life savings at risk. Ton. And it's one of my little pet peeves with social media and coaching and things like that. But there isn't really, but it's more, do you have a ton of followers and do you appear to have a lifestyle that I want over, are you credible? So let's talk about credibility for a second. And then we'll jump into like your big passion and finance, but how does somebody find a credible like wealth manager or advisor? Because I think that's so important. My advice, because obviously like a lot of people don't have the money to go pay somebody for it. So I always say, start with your bank. There's always a financial advisor. You can just start with to talk to and look at what you have. But what is your advice for people? I would say in general, learn how to become a subject matter expert quickly and just understanding all right, if I'm going to make the decision to allocate my life saving to an advisor, how do I judge performance of this advisor? What is their track record? What is the number of clients? What's the assets they oversee? What is the typical profile of clients that they're managing money for? And how do I fit within that picture? You don't want to have a mismatch where you're new to the world of investing and saving and kind of capital. And then you're working with advisors who are typically conditioned to work with more sophisticated family offices and recommending more complex investments. I'd say this to get your, dip your toe in the water, with the proliferation of technology, there's like robo-advisors now that you can use as a great tool for building model portfolios. If you're like, okay, I don't have the time to do a lot of this research, but I can do some initial due diligence, allocate on a regular basis, money to model portfolios on a regular basis as a way to grow wealth over time. And then you maybe you want to get more sophisticated to, as you progress, financial advisors that are recommending things like private equity investments, venture capital, growth investments, real estate. In terms of really evaluating credibility, it's all about a track record. If they have anything on their performance track record, look at the fund that they're recommending to you, the investments, how they performed. 
course, the past is not indicative of the future. But if you see strategies and funds and recommendations that have performed well through a market cycle of down cycles, up cycles, then it should allow you to make that decision more confidently than if you just went in naive allocation and said, oh, this guy seems friendly on the phone and he understands me personally. Like a lot of people allocate money just based on they were able to connect on a conversation with someone as opposed to their expertise or track record. They feel like, oh, they're friendly or I can talk to them. Because it's at the end of the day, it really is sales. So a lot of us that have been in sales thrive off of that being able to build a relationship. And I think that the same skills are needed in wealth management, but there's a lot more risk. Fair? Absolutely. So I went to Babson, yes, because I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. I think at the time they were maybe the number two school in finance. And then I got a taste of finance education and I said, that's not for me per se. And now having had a few businesses, I fell in love with the balance sheet and income statement and everything was good. And I really wanted to understand it. I'm there now. How did you know right away that you were going to follow a finance pathway? And what was your big break? Actually, I became interested in finance around the dot-com bubble at the time. It can remind me of 2007, but also today, everyone that, that you know is talking about stocks, how much money they're making in the stock market. The internet was in the relatively early stage, anything with the dot-com at the end of it, if you were going to life savings. But it wasn't the thrill of the markets going up that kind of piqued my interest. It's the market crashing. It was the crisis itself. Like, okay, what happened? Why was there a crash? What were the results? And to learn from that, it's almost like learning from this big mistake of people riding the wave of what they thought was a way to get rich quickly kind of piqued my interest. And then I you know, started to read things like Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Forbes was following the market. When I went to Bash and I studied finance, at the time, everyone wanted to go into investment banking at Goldman Sachs, at Lehman Brothers before uh, it collapsed. Most people didn't even know what it was. <laughs> like, what is investment banking? They don't know. It sounds mm-hmm. sexy. It's the most, the smartest people I'm, in finance do investment banking. I'm going to be an eye banker. I love how everybody in finance is like, it sounds so sexy to work on Wall Street. And the rest of us are like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I did think that eye banker was internet banker. First time I heard it. It investment just means investment banker. banker. It's just really? like lingo. Wait, what? Yeah. We're talking right, heads. I, I don't live in New York. I never have. So I don't get the like. Wall Street lingo. Everyone makes choices in their life, Meg. You could uh, have been there. I live in California, the best place in the world. No, New York City. Anyway, um, back, <laughs> I back, do to, love New York back City. to Babson. Back to Babson. We're going to let the bromance continue. I'm just going to listen. Go ahead. This is an inclusive conversation. So Babson, again, it was a similar situation. So I graduated 2009. And I saw the same thing running up 2007, 2006. It was a real estate market this time. Everyone's speculating in real estate, buying a hand over fist and thinking, oh, I'm going to buy this property. Prices will just keep going up for no reason. And I'll sell it to someone else. And this is well documented. You've seen like the big short. Actually, Babson was mentioned in the big short book by Michael Lewis. I'm not in a good way though. But the issue of the crisis was they were not doing due diligence on borrowers and people with limited income assets were able to get mortgages at the blink of an eye 
with limited real due diligence and they're going out buying all these properties. They go, I'll be a landlord. I'll do American dream. I'll have property. I'll flip them back. But when you have an excess kind of supply, there's only so many people in the US, right? There's only so many people that will live in these properties. And a lot of people are already in their properties. And you have subprime borrowers begin to default on these mortgages and the banks reclaim those and started a a snowballing effect at the time. A lot of the mortgage-backed securities. So think of it as Wall Street investment banks go out and buy loans from mortgage originators, bundle them all together in a diversified pool with different tranches to ensure like greater protection at the different levels and then sell it to institutional investors. So your pension plan, your insurance company. The problem is if the borrowers for those loans that are packaged and securities begin to default, the value of those securities drop significantly. And when you have a kind of a situation where there's a recession, people losing their jobs, they default and they own all these properties, a snowballing effect. So that was something that I witnessed again at Babson where people were, they had offers rescinded because Lehman Brothers going belly up, Bear Stearns no longer existed. And at the time it became a norm not to get a job straight out of college. And you had to be creative. You had to know how to differentiate yourself given the limited opportunities relative to the amount of new graduates. And that's where I think having a resilient mindset is very key as well. Knowing how to position yourself relative to competitors for the same opportunity, working your network, building your personal brand. Like I think these key factors allowed a lot of people who graduate on time to have, you know, way better relative to others who may not have necessarily focused on those things. And you, how was your time coming out of college? What what did you first get into? And how oh. did it lead to where you are today? Yeah, that was it was funny. I was sharing war stories with someone <laughs> who graduated uh, the same year and it was difficult. You were if you were able to secure a full-time role, which I was, I started a full-time role officially, I think. First, I started in a part-time, then I got off full-time, but I was massively underpaid, like everyone else at that time. And then really had to make the most of the experience while you had it, because a lot of people didn't have the opportunities. I know people who traveled for a year doing caddying and then got a job by being a caddy and meeting the right people. But I think a lot of people made it through that time by being resilient as possible, I think that era, people recently have been saying this generation is entitled. I would definitely say that the folks that graduated on that time definitely had a lot more gratitude, appreciation for opportunities, didn't have the sense of entitlement when going out into the workforce and didn't have the same level of demands. But if you graduated three, four years later, five, 10 years, whatever it is, it's a very different situation. So I think yeah, it was all about being resilient, staying focused, and learning how to work your network, navigate your way through the situ- situation. <clears throat> so it sounds like you were able to build your credibility up and work your way through uh, the gauntlet of financial firms to get to where you are. And you are a very calm, even-keeled gentleman, especially on this podcast. How have you become so mentally strong, or what's your secret to successfully navigating mental health issues? So I will admit that. So my first role was at a very small company where they had 800 employees globally, maybe 35 in the office I was working in. Uh, I was living in 
Cambridge, Massachusetts, always have a special place in my heart. But then moving to New York with a company at the time of 12,000 employees in the hustle and bustle of New York, it was initially, you know, I was doing well, but it was also stressful. You had to really learn to adjust to that environment, kind of very different. Um, so then I think for me, that's where I really began to focus on mental health, mindfulness, meditation, healthy habits, exercise, eating well to manage that. You see uh, a lot of people in these high stress, high pressure demanding it, industries. You read all the time news, oh, the person died of a heart attack at 58. This person died, had a stroke at 57. I mean, you think you work your entire life, you jump through fire for these opportunities, you sacrifice so much of your time, your ability to you know, not be operating on the corporate timeline just to have that happen later in life. So that's what this is a nightmare scenario. And that had happened as well. And when I moved to New York, before I moved uh, to a new role, I think I started that like January and July, someone had a massive heart attack within the same group, passed away. Not too long after that, someone else had a heart attack, didn't pass. Or just I just saw over and over again within that experience, series of health issues really taking people's lives or you know if they didn't die it was like really change how they live their day-to-day life so like wait all right at that point in my 20s like need to develop you know healthy habits not saying i didn't go out and you know party and have fun like the normal 20 something in new york but just making sure doing things like meditation yoga now I swim a lot now. I still do the breathing, meditation, therapy. Therapy is huge. Therapy is making a crazy comeback the last couple of years. It's been wonderful. One of the negative trends you saw initially in the pandemic is like suicide increase, right? People were lonely, isolated, had limited opportunities to interact. If you think about people, we're, we're social animals. We're built to socialize, to explore, to connect. So when you're in that state of extended isolation, it can become a lot mentally for a lot of people to deal with. It's not a divorce rate spike, but at the same time, birth spikes. So <laughs> it was a mixed bag, but yeah, I think mental health should be considered our core component of building wealth. What is the value of achieving wealth, doing well financially, experiencing all your wildest dreams if it set the detriment of your health? Your physical and mental health and it leaves you in a state where you can't. That was well said. Why do you think that, especially in like wealth management or investing sales, all three of those have very high early death rates? Do you think it's just the stress of the job? Because it's all really based on performance, right? These kind of jobs. So I know when I was a sales rep, I worked like 68 hours a week. I never said no. I was traveling constantly. I skipped workouts. I skipped meals. So like I wasn't living a super healthy life then. Do you think that it's the pressure of the jobs or do you think it's like the goal of making money or being the best? Where do you think that comes in? Yeah, it's a good question, Megan. I would say it was a combination of all that, right? It's a highly competitive industry. Yeah. And a lot of these firms, it's toxic, but they say, oh, you're lucky to be here. If you leave today, there'd be a thousand people lined up around, the, you know, outside the building trying to take your job. And there's obviously the the financial incentives to do well and that kind of that pressure. 
I think this generation has put ourselves under a lot of financial pressure to perform earlier in our careers and sustain that. Part of that is the cost of education in the first place. You have to justify, I was just checking the other day, the cost of adoption is like $80,000 a year. Is it? Right now, right? Yeah, like if you go to like the top five schools in the US. My face, I wish everybody could see my face right now. Because I saw my university, which is like a small private university in Arkansas, and it was like 42,000 a year. And I was like, like how let the record show i think it's absolutely worth it <laughs> the cost of the education but yeah if you look at the earning potential over time and the network that you get to tap into okay. and lance can speak to this very well absolutely kills it there's all kinds of love there's all, nothing but love from there and it's not what you know but who you know and how useful yeah. you can be to each other that will change your station in life there's a class for it our intro right now? Of course. So there's a class called Family <laughs> Business Succession Planning where they pair cool. rich family people with smart kids that want to work hard. And that is how it literally changed my life. Our <clears throat> massive client we just got came from a college friend, which is rad. Like networks are cool. But yes, overloading yourself with um, debt. debt without getting the benefits. Like not everyone is uh, a networker or comfortable with that scenario, you'd have to be before jumping into that position, I would well, say. Education itself is also. I think this has changed and I really, I think it's a great thing that's changed since we were in high school is if you were going to be something in life, you had to go to college, right? Like we grew up, that was what you were doing. There was not an option, at least in my family. Like it was like, you go to high school, you do really well, you go to college, you either go to grad school or you get a kick-ass job. That was like, that is all you could do. I didn't know there were other options yeah. at all. And now it seems like there's a ton of different options. I don't think they're all great. Like the amount of children that want to be influencers and YouTube stars is interesting to me, but I think it's a good balance. So like now you have these choices of, is it worth going into debt to do this? Or do I actually just want to do something that I only need like trade school or certification for? Yeah, that's a great point. I think people should be open-minded and do what they're passionate about. Don't pursue a career path just for the money. The money should be the reward showing your passion. But I think right now there's so many great unconventional opportunities to create wealth. Let's just talk about the social media economy, the Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. If, if, if it was an economy, it would be one of the biggest economies in the world. It's true. When you think about all of the advertising revenue, products, services, charging for endorsements. If you want to plug something on an influencer's page, you're charging a quarter million dollars for 24 hours. Like the social media economy has completely changed the dynamic for unlocking opportunities for success. And as a 12 year old, you can tap into this market. You have, I've seen there's a, there's a young child, the multimillionaire making millions of dollars a year reviewing toys. He likes toys. That's his passion, right? He's not, oh, I want to make money, mommy and daddy. He's like, no, I like toys. <laughs> I'm a normal child. I like to play things. I'm interactive. I have a personality. Start doing it. And he's making millions of dollars a year doing that. I think like having access to social media, like platforms that connects people all over the world completely change the game. Like you don't have to go to school. You don't have to go to grad school if you don't necessarily want to. I'm, I'm sure just like with everything else, not everyone makes it, 
because for every success story, for every one person, there's probably like 900 people who try the same thing and haven't had the same success. So there are different elements, but it's just another opportunity set that wasn't available when I was a teenager or in early 20s. Facebook just launched in like what, 2004, 2005. So yeah, I think that's another huge area of potential success that people can explore. Yeah, I think I was going to just point out that every entrepreneur fails many more times probably before they're successful and they learn each from each step. And the true failure is when you quit, if you stop trying, if you fail to identify the adaptive need that you have and pivot and just give up, then, then you're, yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. So thinking about that and your progress in your industry, I was wondering if you have found a niche for yourself where you are like the leading expert at your firm, for instance, when the sovereign wealth firm comes to to you guys, like, how do you what, what are you passionate about having them invest in or, or how does that work? I think in my experience, given I'm an investing in finance, it's being a really great student. You can be a good expert in anything if you're not a great student. So for me, it's being a student in the markets, understanding what's going on in the world of investing, what are the key dynamics, driving opportunities for unlocking value, what are other institutional investors doing, what are competitors doing? What are emerging markets and opportunities that are overlooked? That could be a springboard for massive growth going forward. I have to interrupt you again, Megan, sorry. So TikTok, the great educator, I learned all kinds of great things there. I learned that, I won't get into the background, but ammonia production leads to wheat production and you being a financial, this is not financial advice, by the way, but hearing financial, not financial advice on TikTok all the time, I'm like, man, there's going to be, there's definitely going to be a wheat shortage. And so like, how do we play that? So are you that dynamic or are you trying to play the counterpoint or like a tertiary point? Like where, how do you, or if you can't answer because it's, it might be illegal, I don't know the rules. No, I think I'm more investing over the long term. Like I'm not thinking about one hour term trades and my personal trading account. Yeah, I trade options myself. I trade stocks like anyone else. And I look at, oh, this is oversold massively. This is a buying opportunity or this is overbought massively. Let me stay away from this until it corrects. I think what's going on right now in Russia is going to be way more disruptive than a lot of people fully realize. If you look at the trend for the last 30, 40 years, it's increased globalization increased trade, which has helped drive down the cost for a lot of the products and services that most people are accustomed to buying. When you have a fragmented global market for key goods, especially for commodities, so those are input prices, there's going to be some longer term, second order, third order effects. We're seeing it right now, obviously, with inflation, starting with oil and gas and other products. But I think long-term, if the trend persists, what's been going on recently, the short-term disruption to global globalization, global trade around the geopolitical issues with Russia invading Ukraine and the way China is positioning themselves around that, you can have a divided world where it's like NATO or the better like US, Europe rather, as massive trading partners in some parts of South America, then you have like Russia, 
China. China's made a bunch of investments in Africa for the last 10, 15 years as well. So it's just like kind of rush in Africa as well. So yeah, I think it remains to be seen if a lot of the damage that's been done can be addressed somehow. Uh, unfortunately, there's so many lives that were lost as a result of the war and obviously you can't replace the cost of human life. Um, that's the greatest part of this tragedy. But yeah, I think there's going to be some big disruption if Russia remains on the path going forward, not only in commodity markets, but also cryptocurrency, right? If you're banned from participating in dollar-denominated euro-yen markets, you're seeing then, it's okay, maybe start, and your ruble assets are plummeting like it has been, maybe that make, makes it a case, I mean, your sanction makes a case for investing in cryptocurrency if you're a wealthy Russian private citizen. Definitely, without a doubt. Okay, has it been long enough? Have you forgotten your point, Meg? My point is like, no longer valid. I was going to make a funny comment about Facebook and how old we are. <laughs> it was past. I was on TikTok and discussed learning about how Facebook was before before camera phones were prevalent. Oh, true. Yeah. Think about that. You you were, to... Did Babson get Facebook while you were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We were the, the, the .edu email address. Right? We were the, we were the guinea we pigs. Were, we were second we got, wave. got but facebook when i was there too so it was weird i was not an adapter i said no what's crazy how these things started facebook was rumored you hear that mark zuckerberg rumored not my own words don't sue me to have been started as a something to save people on the harvard campus were hot or not like a rating is that a rumor thing. though it true. might be true. true it might be, it's probably true. It's, Snapchat was like for sending nudes, allegedly. Yes. Rumor, don't oh, sue no. me, Snapchat people. Okay, I remember my sister. So I have a much younger sister. She's 26. And she was like maybe a freshman in high school. And she asked me, she's like, have you heard of Snapchat? And I was like, what is Snapchat? And she tells me like, it's really cool. You send messages and they disappear. And I was like, that sounds like a really bad idea. Because yeah. all I just imagined like all these high school kids sending inappropriate messages, which anyway, sorry, Snapchat, don't sue us. Again, not my <laughs> view or opinion, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Strictly rumor, not spreading. Yeah. I was there. I'm the same year as Mark Zuckerberg at Babson when he was at Harvard. And also uh, Natalie Portman, I think is a year older than us. Did you uh, graduate all... 2006 too? You did, right? I did. Yeah. 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 Don't need to be that direct about it, but we can edit that out. We're anyway, old. so <laughs> when Facebook came out, I was immediately full on believer. And if I had any confidence, like some other kid at Babson did, I would have got my butt over to Harvard and kissed Mark Zuckerberg's ass and got a sales job. That would have been the move. However, now people think Facebook is evil. So who knows if that is a, a good net, but someone should have changed their name to Meta. It was definitely the dating. Yes. It was everything. It was, there was nothing. The internet, the internet wasn't good before. And Craigslist. That was it. Oh, no, I was using AIM. MySpace. Yeah. MySpace Remember ASL rad. on AIM? That's so creepy. You would talk to strangers all the world. ASL. Oh, yeah. That was creepy. Such a location. Yes, I and was doing that was when like... I was like 11. <laughs> yeah. Back in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> With dial-up. Oh, man. Me and my and buddy. The AOL. Call... Remember the, what were those discs? Were they from AOL? They were. Remember the Remember hours Virginia? you'd get free. Oh yeah. Internet hours for dial-up. Mm. 
You put a disc in, kids have no clue what we're talking about. It's yeah. Like, it's back in our day, we had to walk uphill both ways. We are now- Remember floppy disc? Okay. Oh, God. Dude. Oregon Trail. What was that game? I, I remember like downloading. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I want this Cartman sound for later. We had a really old compact computer in our living room, like all growing up. Like one of the only families I knew that had a family computer, but it was huge. And do you remember, the, what was the name of that game? The one where you like shot ducks. Oh, duck I know. is it Duck Hunter? Duck Hunt? Maybe. We actually had the like little joystick that like had the clicker. It was the thing in our neighborhood. This is how old Good we times. are. Sorry, guys. Wolfenstein 3D. Let you know about that. Okay. <laughs> okay, bring um, it back. So, yes, bring it back. Um, um, we talked a lot about mental health. I can't speak today, apparently. Mental health. And a little bit about your like routine and yoga and meditation and all these things, which is great. There's definitely like a stigma around that. I think our generation is doing a really good job breaking that. Do you have a daily routine to stay on track and keep your mind healthy? Now that you're not losing to me at basketball on a regular basis. <laughs> oh my God. What? <laughs> no, he, he's right. I, not on a regular basis. We play basketball once and Lance shot. What? Was like, I was like, you play basketball? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, let's start shooting around. And the guy just like draining three-point shots out of the blue. It was crazy. Like game-winning shots on like uh, four-on-four basketball. We should do some guest appreciation thing at the district. How funny would that be if we had all our guests can play basketball? That'd be great. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, Go now ahead. that you don't have me to, to get you whipped with <laughs> around the court, what do you do every day to keep that fine figure <laughs> and mental health? Uh, five-figure mental health. So it's funny, in December, I was getting back into the gym routine, lifting uh, and all that. And I got sick. I got COVID. And that was the first time getting COVID. I was like freaking out, but recovered and it's fine. But since then I've stopped. So I used to work out in the gym, play basketball. Now I almost exclusively just swim. So I wake up, breathing, stretch, swim, steam room, sauna, uh, and then conquer the day. That, like Breathe's that's kind so of my... Oh yeah, yeah, it is. It's surprising because I wasn't like a particularly good swimmer or swim on a regular basis before the last few months, but it really works out like every every part of your body, good way to clear your head, good cardio. So I'm not, I used to be about bulking and lifting weights and get all muscular. Now I'm just like, I just want to live long, <laughs> cardio health, work out my heart, lungs, and then muscles and I'll be all right. But, and then I think I wake up in terms of mentality, just with an attitude of like gratitude just being grateful to have been able to wake up the next day grateful that i have all my five senses grateful that i'm a great career opportunity when you know work with people i love working with uh, great culture and then being in new york city which to answer both your points, I think California is the best state in America. New York City is the yes. best city in America. So you both win. So I think, yeah, that's a big part of it for me, like gratitude. There's so much has happened the last two years. The world has been turned upside down on a regular basis. I'm yeah. sure there's going to be studies and movies and books written about this era. And it's not normal. Everything that's been going on, but people, it's just been such a whirlwind that we've been accustomed to chaos 
And you have to create and maintain that inner peace within yourself and in your day-to-day -day life in order to have a life of happiness and fulfillment. Because otherwise, if you like focus so much on a lot of the external factors that we, you know, we you and I as individuals really can't control, really drag you down. So yeah, positivity is huge too. Being a source of positive energy, you always want people to feel energized and uplifted after having interaction with you as opposed to drained. So that's like part of the personal view. Go ahead, Lance. No, let's dive into that because there's all this like, there's all this celebration of feelings and coping and you have to get it out there. That's one thing. But people take it, maybe they're not conscientious of the impact they have on others. We should talk about this. We also don't want to promote like, toxic positivity of just always be positive and don't like talk about real shit because i think we're do you're doing a really good job of talking about both but yes positive energy affects other people i love the idea that you should always leave people better than you met them so wait Definitely. can you back it up what does toxic positivity mean okay. just for for us that like have spent a lot of time on social media there's this idea that like you should never put anything negative out there. Like you shouldn't talk about real shit. You should always just be this like bubbly, very positive. Nothing's ever wrong in my life idea of a person. And it's BS because that's not real life. So there has to be room for both, right? Like we have to allow room for duality, but at the same time, understand that we can't be like a drain on people. Yeah, that's a good point. And the problem with toxic positivity, if everyone's going out in the world and saying it's all rainborns or unicorns and you feel otherwise, like you're going through a difficult time, it makes you feel less than. Everyone's doing fantastic. They're happy. They're smiling all the time. They're having great travel experiences and great, and they don't have problems. They're perfect. Mm -hmm. It creates this false narrative of if you have just normal day-to-day -day issues that most people do have, that you're a failure or you're inferior, or everyone else is successful and being the best versions themselves and you're behind in life. So it's the comparison thing as well. And I think you gotta have balance. You have to be genuine, right? If it's, it's incredible how if you see one person be vulnerable and share difficult things that they're going through, whether it's illness or emotional struggle, how quickly you see other people are experiencing the same thing and they can serve as a system of support for each other and overcome that as opposed to everything is great all the time life is good everything's wonderful we're perfect it almost brings you even lower if you're in a bad patch and everyone goes through difficult patches different parts of your day difficult weeks months years whatever but having that support system and being genuine and being able to be by yourself without being judged is huge. I think you gotta have a good circle of friends outside the show, like let's go on social media for a second. In the real world, uh, a support circle, whether that's really good friends, family, even information sources. You listen to podcasts or audiobooks or are there like thought leaders like that you follow, like you know, that allow you to overcome those obstacles. Some people are resilient on their own. They can get through, but a lot of people aren't. I think most of us need like friends, family, resources. Like when we go through our patches, it's totally normal. When we first connected a couple of weeks ago, I had no voice, but you shared a stack of books. 
So one question we always ask is what are books that you recommend one for finances or podcasts and two, what is your favorite book that you've read this year or that made the biggest impact on you? That's a great question for finances. I don't know, a really good book that I read, not this year, but Principles by Redalio. It's a book on applying investing principles, also just your day-to-day life. That was a really good book that I enjoyed. It's on Audible. I'm trying to think, a non-finance book. And he's got that new book too, The New World Order. Yeah. That's a good book too. You held up a whole stack of books that you've been reading. Oh, they're here. Right? Yeah, I buy. I literally buy books in cur- curriculum. Somebody else do this, where you buy this like the like, actual book and then you listen like to it on audio. Books. What are these? Audio doesn't work for me for some reason. I get no? easily distracted. I'm a visual person, mm. so it was funny when I used to study in school. I used to, if I there's certain paragraphs I would just remember because I used to speed read, which means you're reading by lines yeah. as opposed to individual words. But yeah, I would say there's a book that I'm going to start called Autobiography of a Yogi. That's a part of my curriculum on mindfulness, on yoga and meditation and mental health. I just read one called Be Here Now. After Autobiography of a Yogi, I'm going to the Bhagavad Gita. I find I spend a lot of time my day to day reading about finance and markets and investing and all in the news. I need to like, I try to, in my personal reading, get away from all of that. Yeah. So I, at this point, I don't read books on finance and investing. I read Ray Dalio, but that was more of a combination of life and investing. So it's more like now I'm like, okay, what are things that I can learn about to be a better human being, have a good influence and positive impact on myself, my social circle, community. So only have so much time on this earth before you move on. So it's not like so much time. I do have a stack of books here. So I'm just looking at the different curriculum. I like that you call it a curriculum. I like that you like when you, when we first connected, you were like, I pick a subject and buy books on that subject, which I think is great. You mentioned podcasts. What are your favorite podcasts? I actually don't listen to podcasts at all. And the reason is really my, I don't really have time. If you listen to podcasts, people, if if you drive, Mm -hmm. you have a lot of time to sit in your car, you're commuting. You have a long commute on the train. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the train for five to six minutes a day. So Unfortunately, I don't listen to a single podcast right now. But if you do have a great podcast that you recommend, in addition to this one, let me know. <laughs> I'll carve out time and incorporate that into my um, morning routine. We both have some that we love. So we'll share those with you. All in. It's once All in a week. Great. It's got the smartest people in the world on it. Talking talking finance chops. How they made and it. you can have anyone you want in the world read you the news. That's what got me into podcasts. And I listen to them when I jog. That's what I like to do. Maybe you, you can find some waterproof uh, headphones for your swims. Yeah. Oh, I should send you. There's this new thing that I saw at NPR. It's kids giving three minute pep talks from this school in Burlingame. They're like kindergartners through third grade. It's adorable. Uh, and they really record good. new ones every day. Okay. You know, it's interesting. I just want to make one quick point on that. Uh, a coworker yeah. of mine was talking about a podcast that you listened to recently, and they were interviewing kids and asking them what they missed the most about the life, about life pre-pandemic. Oh. And it's really deep. One kid said, "Being able to see each other smile." I was like, "Wow, that's crazy!" But that's really deep. It's something you take for granted, but when you're in school and you're expressing yourself, especially as a young, relatively young person, six, eight years old, whatever. 
that's your, you're growing so much, you're interacting with people on a regular basis. And that's where your brain develops so much and physical expression, just saying things like smiling, something the children have been deprived of for a couple of years because of first isolated learning, the mass mandates. Yeah. Do you guys have, I don't want to dive too much into Are masks still required at schools in New York? I'm just curious. I do not have children. Okay. So I'm wrong person. I don't think so. I feel like I um, only know about California because my sister is a kindergarten teacher. So I know what's going on, but that's the only reason. Yeah, I think they might have recently. I, mean, I know in general restrictions are being rolled back. Lifted. Yeah. Moving on. Game is over. Lance has a big question. I think we prepped you on it last time. Yeah, speaking of awesome skills in basketball, there was this gentleman that made his own office where you could skateboard down a ramp and up one and then shoot a ball in the air and then get back to the front desk. His name, his name is Rob Deerdeck, and that was the Fantasy Factory, which he made a TV show about. And he's taken his coworkers from there and made a new show you've definitely seen, Ridiculousness. What might surprise you about him is that he sold the production company Biggest Deal Ever with MTV and then just really has has maximized his scheduling so that he can minimize his time for actually being involved in hosting the show to only 4% of his time. So he's got everything scripted. I learned about that later in my infatuation with him as he made a podcast called Build with Rob. He now helps people build businesses, which is pretty sweet. He's been doing that for six years. Point being, he's a very productive person. Uh, I look at him as being in God mode all the time just because he's done so many great things. He started as uh, a skateboard maker and trickster and be- became the best at it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So is there anybody that you look up to and you see them as being in God mode or have you felt yourself in God mode? No, that's taken away from the question. Who do you look up to? Who do I look up to? I, I do remember you asked me this question and I'm going to, say for me the person would probably be elon musk and the reason is if you look at what his mission is it's creating a world with clean energy which i'm a big environmentalist i think that's something we actually need to do in order to survive as a human race i don't think this world was built to sustain 10 12 billion people pumping a bunch of carbon emissions into the atmosphere around the clock every day. Most people don't realize this, but electric cars were popular in the early 1900s, but they were killed by the oil industry um, and folks who had a lot of capital invested in the oil industry. I can't imagine where we'd be today and our air quality and the much lower levels of pollution we went in the route of vast majority of electric vehicles as opposed to the internal combustion engine and pumping out exhausts. But then not, not only that, like, and I think it's really cool what he's doing in the, so aside from electric cars, in addition to that, the storage, but also solar power. I think that's gonna be a big wave of the future. There's so many natural forms of clean energy in the world, solar, wind, hydro that we should be exploring. It should be the norm. Like why destroy the planet first and then try to fix it? So I think the work that he's doing there is. Wait, do you, I think Lance knows this about me. It's like a funny little thing, but I had these very lofty goals when I first started perform. And then I thought they were lofty, but we hit them pretty quickly. 
And I got very frustrated at some point because I was just like feeling the grind like a few years in. And one of my investors was like, you have to pick something that's so like outrageous that it's like probably never even going to be created. And, but it's like the thing that you look at when you're like, everything's just fucked. And I was like a Tesla jet. And I was like, I'm working towards getting a Tesla jet. And he's like, anytime you want to like scream fuck at somebody, just say Tesla jet and walk away. It was very funny. So I do this now. Tesla jet you. (laughs) Anyway, it's been great having you on. The openness to talk about mental health is amazing. Thank you so much for that. And I think people will have a little bit more of an idea of how to start in financial investment, at least. Yeah. So as a final goodbye bit of advice, someone with no money making their way in New York City with maybe they're able to scrape 10% for themselves, what should they be doing with that? And not financial advice, but general advice. First, before, I would say always invest in yourself. Look for opportunities to increase your skill sets. Right now, there's so many different resources on that, online, books, your network, you can learn on the job. Like what I tried in my day-to-day jobs, like what do I want to, what do I have to do as part of the job to continue the growth of this group and company and business I'm working on? What do I want to learn to really take things to the next level that would be mutually beneficial for myself and the firm? So challenging yourself on a day-to-day basis to continue to grow, take things to the next level. It's very easy to get complacent and comfortable. And people do this all the time. And it's almost like a, a trap. It can be a trap. If you're in a, a corporate role, you get comfortable you do what's required. You never challenge yourself to get outside of your comfort zone and learn new skills, whether that's Python coding, whether that's understanding the market for NFTs and cryptocurrency, whether that's investing in small businesses that most people overlook. So one great book, actually, back to the book question, great book, Blue Ocean Strategy. It's a great book on marketing and strategy where you're like, there, the theory is there's red oceans and there's blue oceans. Red oceans are markets where it's oversaturated. There's high, barrier interest, high barriers to entry. It's capital intensive. They usually mature industries or sectors. Blue oceans, there's far less competitions, overlooked. It's in the early emerging growth stages and doesn't lower barrier to entries and not as capital intensive. And they use a lot of good examples in that book. But one like obvious, not one, but one that they use throughout the book is if you look at the circus, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey were running the circus since the 1800s. Old industry, it's going around the world, showing people animals. And then you have Circus LA came to the scene, completely different form of entertainment, engaging all these different acts and completely shift. Like how many, it's very rare for people like, oh, I'm gonna go to the circus today. But now it's things like Blue Man Group, Circus LA, it shifted the kind of dynamic on entertainment and particularly like family entertainment as well. That's just like one example. So I would say, like, think of, and w- on your day life, when you see challenges, things that annoy you, things that you hate dealing with, look at obstacles and challenges as opportunities. Like, how can I make this an opportunity? How can I solve this for myself and others and bring a solution um, that's gonna be profitable long-term and make everyone's day-to-day life easier? The 10% question, invest in yourself, invest in yourself, if it's just, if it's 10%, you're living in New York, keep your cost of living low. Don't go getting bottle service at nightclubs. Invest in some ETFs and mutual funds, but always invest in yourself 
and that's skill sets, that's your mental health, that's your physical health. You are your greatest asset. Beautiful. All right, well, that uh, pretty much sums it up. Can't leave on a better note than that. Congratulations on all your success. Ainsley, I don't know if you want to chalk that uh, line up to Kanye. I'm pretty sure he was the one that was talking about uh, opportunity like that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding, actually. He's awesome. I saw the documentary. I know. I'm a I huge know. fan He's of Donda West. His mom? Yeah, dude. Oh my he was gosh. the driving force behind Kanye West. It was just great. You see how much love and support she gave him throughout. She knew all his songs, all his lyrics. She was there at his show. I'm a huge fan of Donda West. I'm a, huge, I'm a fan of Kanye, obviously, but I'm also a fan of his mother. Like, after seeing a huge influence that she was in his life and like literally made him the person he was and believed in him, showed belief and helped him like believe in himself and have that drive to be the best at what he does. If you look back 10 years ago, everyone's laughing at him. Oh, you're not going to make it in fashion. You look at 10 years before that, oh, you're not going to be a rapper. And you saw each time he like defied all these odds. First from being just, first from being a producer in the first place, then being a rapper that people respected. Um, and then being a designer and fashion mogul. Now the guy's a multi-billionaire and he has such a huge impact on the culture. You walk around New York, you can't walk one block in New York without seeing a pair of Yeezys. Incredible. That man. God mode right there. Cool. Yeah, I think that's everything. Unless you wanted to talk about new stuff and what the future brings. But that might not be... Giving away the secret sauce, Lance. But I want to thank you and Megan both for having me. This has been great. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, happy to come back on again. Yes. Thank you. We will have you back. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a All good right. one. Mm-hmm.